podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Tuesday, March the 22nd, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location and access things that you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. So, for example, if you're a UK expat, you live in Spain, you want to watch BBC, can't get access, a Liberty Shield VPN can get you access to BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, all four, whatever it is you want, it can help you while keeping the data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot. If you go to libertyshield.com, use the code router50 at checkout, you'll get 50% off your router. That's 50% off using the code router50 at libertyshield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but ship, shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off. Right, folks, quiet day. It is obviously the international break. So I thought we'd start with the winners and losers from the weekend. Now, obviously, there were only four games, so it's quite obvious who the winners are and who the losers are. But the purpose of this isn't just teams that won their games. It's results elsewhere going in their favour. So the first winner is obviously going to be Arsenal. They won their game. West Ham and Wolves both lost. So they give themselves a nice cushion over those two teams. They're six points clear of West Ham. They're eight points clear of Wolves. Forget the games in hand. Both of them are very, very difficult. They might take no points from either of them. However, they've got that six-point cushion regardless. Early kickoff away, coming off the back of a defeat to Liverpool, Arsenal needed to bounce back and get a result. Because in the Premier League, things can start to slip away from you very, very quickly. One bad result becomes two, two becomes four. All of a sudden, you're in a funk and you find yourself getting overtaken. Look at Brighton. Brighton were top half most of the season. A couple of bad results turned into a bad run of six games where they haven't been able to take a single point. And now they find themselves in 13th, only two points behind Newcastle, who, while Brighton were in the top half, Newcastle found themselves bottom of the table or 19th place. So that shows you how quick this league can change. So for Arsenal to go to Villa Park to play very well, especially that first 50 minutes or so, big, big winners from the weekend. Second winner, Tottenham Hotspur. All the same things as Arsenal, except not only did they win their game, they won their game against a rival for fourth place, beating West Ham. Spurs, as we know, 
have been infuriating this season. Started really well, won three games in a row, then it all fell apart. They sack Nuno, they bring in Conte. They turn things around, they climb the table. They get themselves in a situation where fourth looks like it's theirs to lose. They're a couple of points out of it. They've got a bunch of games in hand. And then they lose those games in hand. And that's what I've just mentioned with Arsenal having games in hand. Don't count points that you don't have. I've been guilty of that with Spurs this year. But now they seem to have rectified things. They've won four of their last five. And this was a big win. And not just that, a big performance. This was a statement performance. West Ham are a very good team. Now, admittedly, they looked exhausted coming off the Sevilla game in the week where they had to play extra time. There was a lot of emotion involved in the game. But Spurs put on a really good performance. They dominated West Ham, played them off the park in spells. And in truth, the scoreline flattered West Ham. 3-1 flattered West Ham. That could have been five very easily. And nobody could really have questioned it. And again, as with Arsenal, you give yourself a bit of a cushion. There's only three points to West Ham, five to Wolves. Again, they do have a game in hand, but that game in hand is Arsenal. Again, they keep themselves close to Arsenal. There's only three points between the two sides. There's that game to come at the Tottenham Stadium between the two teams, which if Tottenham were to win, let's just say 2-0, all of a sudden... They're now above Arsenal in the Premier League. Level in points, but a better goal difference. And that could be crucial. Now, Tottenham have a slightly easier run in than Arsenal, but that game between the two sides is going to be massive. Spurs can't afford to lose that game. A draw wouldn't be the end of the world, but you are looking for the win. That win can massively swing things. So for Spurs, the mission right now has just got to be keep pace, with the Gunners. Admittedly, Arsenal have played a game less, but it's a way to Chelsea. So you'll bank on Chelsea to beat Arsenal at home. Better team, better manager, proven winners. A team that knows how to go and win those games of football. Arsenal don't know how to win those games of football. So let's say Arsenal take no points from that game. Let's say Spurs beat Arsenal at home. Now all Spurs need to do is match Arsenal the rest of the way and their goal difference will give them the advantage. They don't need to play catch-up anymore. They just need to go and focus on winning games. And if push comes to shove, I will back Antonio Conte, Harry Kane, Youngman Son, players that I, players and a manager I've seen be successful before, players at Spurs who've gotten top four before, who know what it takes, a manager who knows what it takes to win in every circumstance over a manager who doesn't and a bunch of players who don't. Go through that Arsenal team. Ramsdale is used to being relegated. He's not used to anything else. Tommy Asu was used to playing mid-table football. Ben White used to lower league and mid-table football. Gabriel Lille were nothing special with him in the team. Kieran Tierney had great success at Celtic. Scottish League. 
doesn't really translate. In Scotland, if you're Celtic, all you have to do is beat Rangers. For most of Kieran Tierney's time up there, they didn't even have to do that because Rangers had been relegated at the start over, were trying to build the way back up and weren't a relevant team. Thomas Partey has been there, done it. But Granit Xhaka, one of the defining figures of Arsenal's failure. Alex Lacazette, another one of the defining figures of, of Arsenal's failure. Odegaard has done nothing in his career thus far. Saka, Martinelli, Smith are all the same. They're young players with a ton of talent. But when push comes to shove, they haven't done it yet. The majority of that Arsenal team have never played in a truly meaningful game of football yet. And by that, what I mean is a game with huge stakes, a game that could define the next couple of years of your club. They haven't played Champions League football. They haven't played a game with Champions League on the line. So how will they cope with the pressure? We don't know yet, but I know that Harry Kane and Youngman Son and Bentoncourt and Regulon and Romero and even Eric Dyer and Hugo Lloris. Hugo Lloris has been there, done everything. But all of those players have been in big games before. They've been in consequential games before. You go through the Arsenal team, you've got Thomas Partey, Kieran Tierney because he's played some Champions League. You could maybe throw Gabriel in because he did have, you know, that last season at Lille, they at least were pushing on for Champions League. But the rest of them haven't. They, they haven't done anything. So we'll see when the chips are down where, where the mentality is. As I've said before with this Arsenal team, you punch them in the face their immediate reflex is to curl up in a ball. And Arteta's, as shown in the Liverpool game, was to go blank and then immediately start looking at the next game. Not how to fix this game. Let's look at the next game. Liverpool scored and he started to panic. They scored again and all of a sudden he's taking off players to rest them for the weekend. He's not bringing on players to change the game and influence things in the half hour that are left. He's just giving it up. Conte doesn't do that. And while some of these Spurs players are a little bit soft, they don't curl up in a ball as a collective unit. They will try and fight back, often in misguided fashion, but they at least put up a fight. So those two, for the weekend, big winners, and those two may well now start to separate themselves from the chasing pack. United are still in that mix, but they're so infuriating that you just don't know what you're going to get with United from one week to the other. They beat Spurs quite recently, but they drew at home with Watford. And normally when you get a team that goes to Old Trafford and get a point, you come away thinking, wow, they played really well. Like, not a team that went to the Etihad, but City went to Selhurst Park. Palace got a draw. And you came away thinking, 
Palace played really well. They defended really well. They caused City a number of problems on the counter-attack. Watford did nothing. Watford were awful. Even Watford fans came away from that game. Like, how did we get anything there? We were terrible. They were furious with Hodgson. They just got in a draw at Old Trafford. But United were so poor on the day that they couldn't overcome Watford. That's why United, it's hard to know what they'll do over their last nine games. They're capable of stringing together a couple of good wins. They're also capable of a couple of spectacular losses or bad draws. So it felt like a big weekend for Tottenham and Arsenal. The third winner is Leeds. And again, it's because they won a game. But not only did they win a game, they won a game where they went 2-0 down. Yes, they got a massive helping hand from the referee. But remember, the night before that game, Everton beat Newcastle and closed the gap on Leeds to one point. Even after Leeds beating Norwich, Everton replied with a, with a victory. So Leeds needed to reply with a victory of their own just to give themselves some breathing room. Now they're seven points clear of Watford. They're eight points clear of Burnley. And yes, Burnley have three games in hand, but with the way Burnley have played this season, they've only won three games. We really see them winning all three games in hand. What Leeds have done is given themselves breathing room. And now it may well be that it's Burnley, Watford, Everton for those last two relegation spots. Leeds have seven points on Watford, eight on Burnley. It's very hard to see those clubs hauling them back. You could see Everton hold them back because they've got three games in hand. But if you finish eight, if you if you finish 17th, you still stay in the division. You don't need to worry about going down. 17th is fine. Leeds would take 17th if offered it now. So would Everton, so would Watford, so would Burnley. The only people that care whether you finish 14th or 17th, if you're in that that group, say, below Brighton, Newcastle, Brentford, Leeds, Everton, Watford, Burnley and, and Norwich, the only people who care where you finish between 14th and 17th are the financial directors because each place is worth about 2 million quid. But the players don't care. The owners will care a bit, but their preeminent thought is just stay in the division. Same for the managers. Just stay in the division. Keep me in a job. Stay in the division. Let's get into the summer and try and fix this then. So for Leeds to win back-to-back games gives them a confidence boost. They also had Phillips back on the bench. That will be massive coming back out of the international break to have their... Certainly the most important player. I think Rafinha is probably their best player, but Phillips is is number two there. But he's their most important player, utterly key to their defensive system and hugely important with his passing and his ability to drive the team forward when they have the ball. He's also the one guy in that team that will pick a fight. 
He's the one guy in that team that if the game gets really nasty, he will stand up. Now, look, there's others that will follow him into that scrap. Liam Cooper wouldn't be wouldn't be afraid. I don't think Luke Ayling would. Uh, I think Stuart Dallas, Matthias Glish, those type of guys, they'll follow Cooper into a fight, but they won't start the fight. Cooper will go and start the fight. Cooper's the one that will take things to somebody else. And that's, or sorry, Phillips is the one that will take things to somebody else. And that's massively important. At this point of the season, when you've had the type of season that Leeds have had and you've lost 15 games in a Premier League season. So getting him back and knowing he's available for the next game, massive. Cooper will be back as well for that one. He was on the bench. They did have some bad luck with injuries, but we'll keep our fingers crossed for them that nothing is too serious. Uh, as things stand, I don't think there's been any real update on Bamford or Lorente. The keeper getting hurt is an interesting one because Klassen came on and looked really good. Leeds at the moment have 10 players down marked out as injured. Um, that is not really ideal at all. But we'll wait and see what happens with them. Uh, you've got Junior Firpo. They're hopeful he'll be back in the middle of April, probably miss the first game back after the international break. Leo Hiel should be back straight after the international break. Uh, so should Bamford. Apparently, so should Lorente. Anglish. Melier will see. Um, Shackleton and Bate will be fit. Tyler Roberts has done for the season. And then Rafinha, I think he's got COVID, so he should be back. So they may well get close to everybody back for their next game. And then by the following game, the only one that will be out will be Tyler Roberts. Now, knowing Leeds, look, they'll pick up an injury somewhere else. But I do think they come out of the weekend as big winners, even with these injuries, especially if these return timetables turn out to be accurate. If Bamford and Lorente are only going to miss a week or so of training and then are back, that's huge for them. Because coming out of the break, Leeds still need to pick up points. They get Southampton at home. That's a winnable game for them, especially with the form Southampton are in. Then they get Watford away. And again, a winnable game. Go and win those two and you're safe. Win one of them and get a draw on the other one, you're probably safe. But Leeds could save their entire season just by beating those two teams. Having won two in a row, if they could string together four wins in a row, it wouldn't matter what happened after that. They'd be fine. And they've got difficult games off the back of that. They get Chelsea, Palace away, City and Arsenal away. That's four really tough games. They get Brighton at home and Brentford away as their last two. If they need a point, there's probably a point to be had there for them. But take four points from your next two games and you should be fine. I don't think we'll see a team go down with more than 30, 31 points this season. I think that's probably the cutoff. If you can get beyond that, you're probably going to be okay. So for Leeds... You probably need three to four points. For Brentford, two to three points. But eight games left, if you don't do that, you deserve to go down. Uh, on to the losers then. We'll start at the bottom, Norwich. 
Watford won at the weekend. Everton won against Newcastle. Leeds have won back-to-back games. And obviously Brentford won back-to-back games before losing to Leicester at the weekend. So it's not just about this past weekend where Norwich didn't play. It is about maybe the last week, the last two weeks, where they've been stringing together defeats. And the teams that would have been in the mix with them to go down have started to pull clear. Newcastle, another one. Newcastle were right down there with Norwich for the majority of the season. And all of a sudden, Newcastle now probably one or two points for safety. So for Norwich, even without playing, the fact that Leeds won again, Everton won Thursday night, Brentford have won recently, Watford have won recently. They are the big losers here. I also think you can throw Burnley into that group as well because while they didn't play, again, it's the same thing. The other teams are winning games and they're just not. They're just not winning games. They're just falling over themselves time and time again. I'd still give Burnley a good fighting chance, but that four-point gap to Everton, that's difficult. That is now very difficult. Everton's run-in is horrible, though. That's worth remembering. Everton's run-in is horrible. They go West Ham next. Then they play Burnley away. So if Burnley can beat them, all of a sudden it's one point. Then they get Manchester United. They get, they have to play Crystal Palace. They have to play Watford away. That's a winnable one, of course. Leicester twice. Liverpool away. Chelsea. Ever, uh, Arsenal away on the last day of the season. And they play Brentford at home as well, which is a winnable game. So they could win two there. They could beat Watford. They could beat Brentford. But it is really hard to see them taking anything else unless they beat Burnley. Now, of course, they, that's very, very likely that they could do that. But if they don't, and they don't beat Watford, then, you know, then they are in big trouble. Uh, Burnley's running is slightly easier. They have City next. That's really tough. Just write that down as a defeat. But then they get Burnley. Oh, then, sorry, then they get Everton. Then they get Norwich away. That's a winnable game. West Ham away. Southampton at home is a game they could maybe take something from. Wolves at home. Watford away. Villa at home. Spurs away. Newcastle at home on the final day. So for being generous, let's say... Burnley take four points from the Norwich and Watford games. They beat Newcastle final day. Maybe they get a point at home to Southampton. There's eight points. Which would bring Burnley to 29 points. Everton, let's say they beat Watford. No, let's say they draw at Watford and beat Brentford. That puts them on 29 points. It's difficult to see Everton getting points anywhere else. Now it's on that Burnley game. 
that is season defining. That's the game that defines it for both teams. And in all likelihood, what uh, Burnley will have a better goal difference. So a draw might suit Burnley. I still, I still have Everton going down. They're getting all the help they can possibly get from referees. Have you, has anyone seen the updated VAR table and how many decisions have gone their way? But I still think Everton will go down. I still think it's Norwich, Watford, Everton. And maybe I'm putting too much faith in Dyche, but the running is easier. They get Everton at home. And having Newcastle at home on the final day of the season, when Newcastle in all likelihood will be on the beach, I think that matters. Whereas Everton have to go to Arsenal. And Arsenal will probably need three points in the battle for top four, unless things go for them or against them between now and then, and they're already secure in fourth, Arsenal will need those three points. And I did have a bizarre dream at some point last night. I don't know what else happened, but I know that it flashed up on a TV. Arsenal 7, Everton 1. Couldn't tell you any more than that. <laughs> Probably shouldn't even tell you that, but that's that's what was part of my dream last night. Arsenal 7, Everton 1. They Imagine if they lost 7-1, that took them down. If that burned the club to the ground, liquidate all the assets... Let's all throw our support behind Tranmere's rise, rise to the Premier League. Um, second loser, then, you've got to go Wolves. Losing to a bad Leeds team and thus losing ground on Tottenham and Arsenal when in, you know we, we all expected them to win that game and keep pace. A win there would have put them in seventh place. They would have been only five points behind Arsenal, only two behind Tottenham, one behind United. It's such a big blow for them. And now they're going to lose uh, Jimenez for the next game. And is he getting two games? Because that's the second red card of the season. I don't know if that's the case, but either way, uh, to lose Jimenez now for an upcoming game is massive. Uh, This doesn't really need to be any more said. They lost at home to Leeds. That is a big, big blow. And the final loser then is obviously West Ham because, again, you lost the game to one of your top four rivals. Now, for them, there's still a path into the Champions League through the Europa League. And we're at the point with the Europa League where, you know, you start to really take stock of who's left. And I don't know that West Ham would necessarily be scared of any of them. Leipzig are very good. West Ham won't be scared of them. Atalanta are very good. West Ham won't be scared of them. Leon are very good. Well, no, Leon aren't very good. Leon are good. They're very talented. West Ham won't be scared of them. They won't be scared of Braga. They won't be scared of Rangers. They wouldn't be scared of Eintracht Frankfurt. They might be a little bit scared of Barcelona, but most of that is on the legacy of Barcelona as a football club, not on what they are now, though I'm going to come to it in a few minutes. They did have a great result at the weekend, a great performance. But West Ham can look at that and think, we can win this competition. 
we can win this competition. Now, I would say, if I was a West Ham fan, I would say that the way the draw has worked out has worked in their favour. So, in a one-off game, I wouldn't give them much chance against Barcelona because I think the mindset of Barcelona and the, the likes of Busquets and Pique and Alba and Dani Alves, who've been there, done it and won everything, would give West Ham, would give Barca a huge advantage. But in a two-legged game, I think West Ham could beat Barcelona. I think they'll beat Leon. I think Barca will beat Eintracht. And that gives us West, West Ham versus Barca in a two-legged semi-final. I think they can beat them. I'm not saying they will beat them. I think they can beat them. On the other side, you get Braga Rangers. Braga are probably a slightly better team, but Rangers in Europe just seem like a different breed of team. So maybe Rangers come through there and they face Leipzig or Atalanta. I'm leaning Leipzig, but I'd love Atalanta. If I could pick a team to win it, I'd love Atalanta to win the competition. I'd love to see Gasparini finally get some silverware. But in a one-off final, West Ham could beat either of them or any of those four from that side. In a one-off game, West Ham can beat any of them. The only team I don't think they could beat in a one-off game is Barca. But I do think they could beat them in a two-legged game. So I think that draw has worked out. And if they get into the Champions League that way, then where they finish in the league is kind of irrelevant. Um, but it does mean, you know, that the door is closing a little bit on them getting directly into the Champions League through the Premier League this season. And that's a blow to them because after last season where they did come quite close, you know, they finished one point, sorry, two points outside the uh, Champions League places. I think they'd have been hopeful of getting, getting in this year, especially with a lot of the chaos going on seeing where Arsenal are in the rebuild, all the chaos at Spurs, all the chaos at United, Leicester falling apart. I think Moyes and his, his team would have sat down in October, November and thought, we can, we can actually do this this year. But they've just slipped up at the wrong times in certain years. Uh, they got a blow yesterday. It's been reported that Jared Bowen could be out for a bit longer than expected and that he might miss both games against Leon, which initially they reported no real damage to the foot. It looks like it is a broken bone. So we'll see how long it takes to heal. Foot injuries are always difficult, especially for a player like Bone, who relies quite a bit on his pace and that explosive first step. So we'll see. Um, but yeah, West Ham, Wolves and Norwich are my losers this weekend. Arsenal, Tottenham and Leeds are my winners. Uh, we'll move on, and um, we'll move on to a quick look around the other top five leagues. So in France, PSG were humbled at the weekend, beaten 3-0 by Monaco, Ben Yedder with two, and Kevin Volland with the other one. That, by the way, is a Monaco team who sits seventh in the league, who had been really inconsistent in the run-up to that game, are six points behind Nice, who sit fourth, and very unlikely to find their way into the Champions League for next season. Also got dumped out 
of the Europa League in the week by Braga. So it's not exactly a classic Monaco team. It's an embarrassing result for PSG, who've now lost three of their last five games. But it speaks to where the French League is this season, that they're still 12 points clear, despite this arguably being the worst PSG team since all of this began. I know last season they lost eight games, but then he finished one point off the top, and Lille were really good. Uh, this season, in a league without a real competitor, they're going to win it comfortably, but they just they don't strike the same level of fear as they did before. There's too many, too many entitled players there. Um, so as things stand, anyway, we have PSG top, Marseille second. Great to see them back in the mix. Rennes third. They've won five in a row. They're the form team in France at the minute. Obviously went out to Leicester in the Conference League, which shows that you know Leicester got them at a time where Rennes were running hot and, and still managed to get through. And then Nice in fourth. Nice had been looking like a good bet for second, but they've um, they've dropped points in three of their last four. And uh, seem to just have hit a little bit of a rough patch. Strasbourg fifth, but only one win in the last five for them. No defeats, though, so that's that's decent. Lille have climbed. They were mid-table a couple of weeks ago. Now they're sixth, finding a bit of a groove. Still a disappointment compared to what they were last year, but they did lose some important players and, of course, the manager. So as things stand, PSG are going to win the league. Uh, Marseille, Rennes and Nice look like they'll fill out the top four. Um, Bordeaux looks certain to go down. Metz looks certain to join them. And then you've got Saint-Étienne, Clermont and Laurent as the next three, one of them set to go down. Moving to the Bundesliga, Bayern are, of course, running away with, not running away with the six points clear. Even though they've had some stumbles recently, they got beaten by Bochum. They've drawn two of the last three, but they're still six points clear of Borussia Dortmund. Dortmund are a further nine points clear of Leverkusen. Leverkusen have had some horrendous luck with injuries. Horrendous luck. Patrick Schick was having the season of his career. He got hurt. Florian Wirtz was making those who weren't aware of him very much aware of him, and he tore his ACL. In fourth place, we've got Leipzig. They've bounced back from a dreadful start of the season. Obviously, Jesse Marsh got sacked. They sit in fourth, level on points with Freiburg, who've had a brilliant season. And it would be a real shame to see them miss out because I'd love to see Freiburg in the Champions League. They're just a great club, brilliantly run. They've got a long-term manager who just continues to turn down bigger and better opportunities because he's so loyal. So they're level on points. Hoffenheim, one point behind. You'd imagine Dortmund should be safe, uh, Dortmund should be safe in second. Leverkusen should be okay, but without without Schick and Wurz, maybe they start to really wobble, and maybe Leipzig, Freiburg, and Hoffenheim could all jump them. But it it looks like it'll be two from that four: Leverkusen, Leipzig, Freiburg, Hoffenheim. I, I really want Freiburg to get in at the bottom. Guterfurt are uh, nailed to the bottom, fifteen points, ten behind Armenia Belfield. Uh, so it looks like Guter will go down, and then it is probably two from four. It is Armenia, Hertha, 
Augsburg and Stuttgart. Stuttgart have pulled themselves out of the mire recently. Eight points in the last five games after 18 from the previous 22. Is it two down and one into the playoff? I think that's the way they work it in the Bundesliga. I could be wrong. It could be one down and one into the playoff. If it's only one down and one into the playoff, then um, at the minute it looks like Arminia Belfield will be the team in the playoff. Hertha Berlin, though. I mean, all the money they've spent over the last few years and they remain a train wreck. There's no excuse for it at all anymore. Uh, moving to Spain and Real Madrid, stay top of La Liga, nine points clear of Sevilla. Barcelona, three points behind Sevilla. Barca have won five in a row, whereas Sevilla have only won one of their last five with four draws. So Barca really making a push under Xavi. Great win at the weekend, obviously destroyed Real Madrid, 4-0 at the Bernabeu. I will say Real had no real interest in this game, and there's a reason they lined up with a 4-2-4 and no striker at all. Um, but Barca took advantage and were brilliant. And Usman Dembele, finally, finally, after what's now five years at Barcelona, is beginning to show the form that led them to buy him. This is Dortmund, Usman Dembele. And unfortunately for Barca, he's doing this as he's about to become a free agent in the summer. Now, you wonder if that's what's driving him, the fact that he is about to become a free agent, the fact that he's looking for a massive contract somewhere else. But when he plays like that, he is truly special. And it reminds me reminds you of why when he was at Dortmund, having moved from Rennes, and Mbappe was making, you know, his real announcement at, at Monaco, Monaco, these were the two top players in the world. And these were the two guys that were tagged as they're going to be the next Cristiano and Messi. The the Ballon d'Or for a decade will be these two kids. And no one else is going to have a look in. Now, Mbappe has elevated himself well above Dembele. But when you see Dembele playing the way he has since January, you're reminded that from a talent point of view, he's probably the more talented of the pair. He doesn't have Mbappe's mindset or work ethic. But from a talent point of view, he is spectacular. A little bit like Neymar, who's the man he was bought to replace. Um Atletico Madrid are fourth level in points of Barca. Barca have a game in hand. That game in hand, I believe, is against Rayo Vallecano. It is. So you'd expect Barca to win that one fairly comfortably. That will put them level in points with Sevilla, but with a better goal difference. So Barca could end up second in the league this year, which would be a remarkable turnaround considering how awful they were earlier this season. Uh, going down Levante, uh, probably Alaves. And then I would guess one of Mallorca, Cadiz, Granada and Hetafe, probably one of Mallorca and Cadiz. I'd like Mallorca to stay up, but they've lost five in a row and they're not doing themselves any favour. There's a lot of talented players there, but maybe a lack of maturity in the squad. Uh, on to Serie A. And AC Milan now have a three-point lead at the top of the table from Napoli. Inter have chosen this time of the year to have a stumble only one win in the last five, three defeats, three draws, one defeat. Drop some bad points. I mean, they should have beaten Fiorentina. They didn't. 
They should have beaten Torino. They didn't. They should have beaten Genoa. They didn't. These are not good teams. These are teams that Inter should be beating. Fiorentina are 8th. Torino are 11th. Genoa are 19th. It really isn't good. But it should lead us to a really good title race over the next eight games. Now, Inter have a game in hand, but they're six behind Napoli and only one ahead of Juve. Now, I don't think Juve can catch Milan. I think that seven-point gap will be too much, but they could get second, which, again, considering how poor they've been most of the season, would be a fair achievement. Eight points between Juve and Atalanta. Atalanta have a game in hand, but I don't think they'll be able to close that gap. Uh, Mourinho's Roma level on points with Atalanta. At the bottom, Salernitana, pack your bags, you're heading back to Serie B. And then it's going to be two from Genoa, Venezia and Cagliari. Barring a late season collapse by Sampdoria or Spezia, it's going to be two from that three. Genoa have turned their season around a bit, unbeaten in five, but only one win in those five. But it has dragged them back into contention because they've been diabolical this season. They've only won two games all year. Two games all year. This is the dross that I've aligned myself with. Um, And it's all Packy Bonner's fault. Bonner, David O'Leary, and the 1990 Ireland team beating Romania on penalties in Genoa Stadium. I love the stadium. Then Liverpool played Genoa in, I think, the UEFA Cup. They had Scaravi up front. They had uh, Branco at right back, a left back, rather, the fellow who ended up at Middlesbrough years later with the rocket launcher of a left foot. It's part of that Brazil team that won a World Cup in 94. Love the jerseys. Just decided then and there, that's my Italian team. That's who I'll keep an eye on. Uh, there's been no success and uh, lots of heartache. And now, heartache's a bit, a bit harsh, but a bit, a, bit, a bit strong, but a lot of disappointment, shall we say. And now they're staring at relegation. So that's that's always nice. Um, Werder Bremen, the Bundesliga team I aligned myself with, they got relegated last year. So why wouldn't Genoa get relegated this year just to double down? And... Um, Yeah, that is how the top five leagues look out. Now, personally, I do think the Portuguese Premier Liga is actually a better league than the French League, largely just because it's more competitive. So in case you're wondering, Porto, six points clear at the top from Sporting, a further six-point gap to Benfica. Those three are obviously on a level above everybody else. There's a 12-point gap from Benfica to Braga. And at the bottom, be sad. I think you would be if you were watching them play every week. Uh, they look like they'll go down. Um, Morenze and Tondela look like the others who will likely go down. Again, I'm not sure if it's two down or three down. I, I don't pay enough attention. But Porto look like they should be good value to win the title. They are uh, six points clear, unbeaten through 27. Seven games left. Very hard to see that Sporting would close that gap. Uh, Sporting have had a lot of injuries this year. Um, Cancalves, who was their best player last year in the title-winning season, has just had a season wrecked with injuries. 
Uh, but Ruben Amram has still done a brilliant job. They've got the best defensive record. And they're second in the league, only two defeats. You can't really can't really argue. They also won the League Cup. So Sporting continue to have some success. Benfica will be disappointed with their season as they were last year. They spent an awful lot of money last, not last summer, the summer before, brought in a bunch of big name, over, overpaid, experienced players. None of it's worked. Uh, they brought in George Jesus, who'd obviously been there before, has been all around, has had success everywhere. He came back. It didn't work. They sacked him before Christmas. There's upheaval in the boardroom. The former president, I believe, has been arrested for laundering money or shenanigans. Benfica is a disaster, but they're still going in the Champions League. So, you know, they have that. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got some news and we've got some gossip and we'll get out of here. See you in a few. Right, welcome back. So, uh, England squad news. Obviously, didn't think much of the squad when it was named. Still don't think much of it, but there has been some new additions. Aaron Ramsdale has pulled out of the squad with an injury, as has Trent Alexander-Arnold and Rhys James and Tammy Abraham. So, Ollie Watkins has been called up to replace Tammy. Sam Johnston of West Brom has been called up to replace Ramsdale. I'm surprised he's not gone Dean Henderson, but I'm happy he's not gone Dean Henderson. He hasn't played for United barely this season. Whereas Johnston, while it may be in the championship, is at least playing regularly. A Premier League club will sign Sam Johnston this season. And if they sign him to be a backup, I think that's a really good move. If you sign him and you've got ambitions to finish top half and he's your starter, I think that's questionable. But he's a fine starter for bottom half team. Um, but the ones I'm actually excited for, Kyle Walker-Peters has been called up to replace Reese James, and I think he deserves it. He's been very good for Saints this year, playing both right-back and left-back. And Tariq Mitchell, called up to replace Trent. I, I love him. I think he's such a good defensive left-back, solid on the ball, doesn't do anything too spectacular, but doesn't let you down. Seven out of ten every single week. And for Palace to have three players in the England squad is incredible. I don't think that's ever happened. Maybe back in the days of right and bright, but certainly not during the Premier League era that I can think of. Uh, Mitchell's had such a good season. Him and Gwehi have a really good understanding. And I really, really think that's a, a great call-up by Southgate, who I'm not a fan of, but I think he's done well with these secondary call-ups after some of the initial squad pulled out. And for Mitchell... At 22, to get involved in the England squad is huge. I've said before, I think they're a right back away from having a really good defence. I really like Anderson. Gwehi has massive potential and is already excellent. Mitchell's very, very good and has big potential. They can solve that right back spot. And maybe it's the return of a former player in Wan-Bissaka this summer. Like If I was them, I'd probably kick the tyres on seeing if United would loan him. If you could get him on loan, Wan-Bissaka, Anderson, Gwehi, Mitchell. That would be really, really strong defensively. Don't ask your fullbacks to do too much going forward. You'll be fine. 
And one thing Patrick Vieira doesn't do is ask his fullbacks to do too much going forward. If they can be solid like that, then maybe the move of Eberichi Eze to the number eight position can be a permanent thing. If you put a really good holding midfielder, Eze is one of your eights, and you can either keep Conor Gallagher or find a way to get him back on loan or find someone that can replicate what he does, all of a sudden that midfield could be very, very strong. And up front, you're going to have Elise, you're going to have Zaha either side of either Mateta or Edward. That's really good. I think Palace should be really excited about what the future is going to be. Now, look, they will get cherry-picked at some time. At some point, someone's going to come along and take Elise. Someone will take Eze if he gets back to pre-injury form. But in the short term, definitely something to enjoy. And that money can be reinvested in other big talents to fill those roles down the way. Speaking of left-backs, like Tyreek Mitchell, Brentford have announced a long-term contract for Rico Henry that will tie him to the club till 2026 with a club option for 2027. Henry's had a good season this year. And in his first season in the Premier League, I think he's shown that he belongs. He is a very, very talented player who I was very keen on Liverpool to sign a couple of years ago, uh, either as a backup to Robertson or even before Robertson, when he was back at Walsall, I thought he was someone they could buy to develop into that starting role. Uh, He went to Brentford. It took him a bit of time to settle. The first three years, he had a lot of injuries. But since then, he's just been outstanding. He was the best left back in the championship for two straight years. He's come up into the Premier League and looks like he's been here for years. And at, was he, 24 now, 25 in the summer, for him to commit his long-term future to Brentford is a big deal for the club. So fair play. Um, We have a story here about Chris Sutton, who says Everton manager Frank Lampard may regret criticising his struggling squad and questioning their courage. And I think he's right. I mean... Lampard really, really went in on his group of players after the Palace game. He said, there's only so much you can keep trying to butter them up to give them their confidence. That's your job. That's your job. You know what else is your job? A tactical approach. That's also important. And you haven't shown anything in that realm yet. You know what else you're meant to do? improve these players on the training ground and again you've shown no inclination to do that we got loads of hype about this crack coaching group that Lampard had been putting together since leaving Chelsea that's all turned out to be garbage all of it's nonsense they look absolutely clueless the squad looks genuinely bereft of confidence and as if they're playing without any sort of instruction at all. Like, they've just been so poor under Lampard. They were bad under Benitez. I'm not sitting here saying they weren't, but they've been so poor under Lampard, at least under Benitez. You could see the rough outlines of what he wanted to do. It was just that he had so many injuries to deal with. Lampard's had some injuries to deal with, but the football has been absolutely diabolical. They were blessed in that game against Newcastle. And you look at their, their wins under them, and it's not like they've been pulling up trees. 
They've won, what, two league games? They beat a bad Leeds team and Newcastle. And regardless of the fact that Newcastle have turned things around and are in good form, they're still a bad team. You're not garbage for 20 games the way they were if you're not a bad team. So they've won two games against bad teams. They also beat Boreham Wood in the FA Cup and Brentford in the FA Cup. So three bad Premier League teams and a non-league team. That's what Lampard has done. Lost to Palace, lost to Wolves, lost to Spurs, lost to City, lost to Southampton. Lost to Newcastle as well, I believe. Didn't they lose to Newcastle in his first game? I'm almost certain they did. So, like, what are we meant to be impressed by here with Lampard? You don't have any bad teams left to play this season. I think they'll go down. I said it earlier. I think they'll go down. A couple of interesting pieces on the BBC website just to draw your attention when you get a bit of free time later. It's a really good piece written by Jordan Elgott of Aaron Hickey, uh, the Scottish teenager currently playing for Bologna. Came through at Hearts, had offers to go everywhere. Celtic, Villa, Bayern Munich, chose Bologna and has really established himself there as one of the better young fullbacks in Europe. This kid is is really, really talented, can play both sides, can play in midfield. He's just a very, very good player. So do give that. It's a long read. It's a very good piece. Give that one a read when you get a chance. There's also a piece um, which is very, very interesting uh, by Marcus Alves, Evangelicalism and uh, Brazil, the religious movement that spread through a national team. Give that one a read as well. It is fascinating. And again, it's a bit of a longer read, but it's a good deep dive into, into the subject. Um, well worth your while giving that one a read. We'll finish up with the gossip here for the day. Manchester United want Everton and Brazil forward Richarlison. The 24-year-old has also been linked with Real Madrid, managed by former Toffees boss Carlo Ancelotti. I would say managed for now by Carlo. I don't know that he'll be there long term. Uh, I don't believe that United want Richarlison, but if they do, I can't really think of many worse fits. Uh, Juventus have confirmed Paolo Dybala will leave the club as a free agent in the summer. He's previously been sought by Manchester United and Tottenham. My money would be on Inter Milan as the landing spot for him. Newcastle will go back in for Victor Asimian, despite the Italian side reportedly turning down a £100 million bid from the Magpies in January. There, there was no £100 million bid. But like, that would have been everywhere if that's true. That's just something the Express and some crappy Italian press have made up. Um, Victor Asimian is... Really, really good, though. Really, really good. As an all-round centre forward, he's one of the best in Europe. I don't think I'd pay £100 million for him, though. Like, when I look at him, he's 23. He'll be 24 in December, so he's still a young 23. He's really good at absolutely everything. He's got really good pace, really good hold-up play, links the game well, works the channels, Presses very, very well. He's not a massive goal scorer, but he shows enough to suggest 
he could become a consistent 20 a season, 25 a season across all competitions. But Napoli paid 70 million euro, rising to 80 million euro for him. I think now he's probably worth what Napoli paid for him. They overpaid big time at that point. A lot of it was the same reason Arsenal ended up overpaying hugely for Nicola Pepe. Small amount up front, backloaded payments. Remember, Arsenal are going to be paying for Pepe for their four or five years. And most of the money is still due on that one. Same thing here. If Napoli do sell them, they're going to want a big profit. And if you pay £100 million for him now, what's that, about 115, 120 million euro? That's well over what he's worth. Well over what he's worth. And he's never going to be that value of player, in my view. I think he's going to be great, but not like the elite of the elite that you'd pay. Now, look, transfer prices could skyrocket again. I don't think they will, but they might. Never thought we'd see someone pay 200 million for a player and then the Neymar thing happened. I thought when we got to the Pogba deal, everybody might take a step back and go, hang on a sec, what's happening here? 89 million for a midfielder. That midfielder? But I I, I would be very hesitant to paying about paying 100 million for Victor Simeon. If it could get him for that... 70 million euro type of fee, which is about 56, 58 million pounds. Absolutely. Absolutely. But not a hundred million pounds. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. He's had one season at Lille. One season at Lille. And Napoli paid that type of money. He scored 10 and 30 last season. He got 15 and 25 this year. He's had some injuries as well. That's another thing you'd have to worry about. Tremendous player. Huge potential. One of the best number nines in the world. Really well-rounded. No real weakness in his game. But that's... That's a ridiculous amount of money for a player who's got 63 goals in 145 games. Less than one and two. Quite a way short of one and two. I'd have real concerns with paying that type of money for him. But maybe that's the only way Newcastle can get someone like him. Maurizio Pochettino, Eric Ten Hag, Julian Lopetegui and Luis Enrique are on the four-man shortlist being considered by Manchester United in their search for a permanent manager to replace Ralph Ranić. Luis Enrique will not leave Spain before the World Cup, so you can rule him out. And of the other three, Lopetegui is the best manager. And he's the one best suited to, to going there. He's also the one I hope doesn't take it because if it goes wrong for him, it's another massive setback. He already had the massive setback at Real Madrid. He obviously got sacked by Spain on the eve of the World Cup as well. So I would like to see him stay at Sevilla for another couple of years, continue what he's doing there and maybe take a more stable job. He'll be on my list of short, my, my short list of candidates to replace Klopp in a couple of years. Uh, Ten Hag is the front runner after the United compiled uh, extensive background checks on each of the candidates. 
Is this like when they looked at 804 right backs and, and settled on Mambasaka? Arsenal will make a move for Arthur Mello in the summer after failing to agree a deal for him in January. Uh, they'll, they may want to buy him, though, because I don't think Juve will loan him at this point. Uh, he is a very good player. He'd be a good addition there. They could do better, but he'd be a good addition. He's certainly a lot better than Granite Jacket. Inter Milan have identified Manchester United and Uruguay striker Edinson Cavani, 35, as a replacement for Chilean forward Alexis Sanchez, 33. So not only is he a completely different player, he's also two years older. And one of the reasons they don't want to give Alexis a new deal is because of his age. So that makes no sense. Arsenal and Liverpool are monitoring Cody Gakpo, but will face competition from Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Bayern are fairly well stocked on the wing. It could make sense for Arsenal if they do want to move Martinelli through the middle. And it would make sense for Liverpool if Mane leaves as the backup left winger to Luis Diaz. Manchester City are preparing a bid for Boa Vista's 21-year-old Ecuadorian central defender, Jackson Perozo. Very, very talented. Not near ready. Not near ready to go play for Man City. Now, what would ha- probably happen is he'll get loaned out through the, um, the City Football Group. But I'd rather see him stay in Portugal another couple of years and develop there, make a move to Sporting or Benfica or Porto and carry on his progression that way. Leeds are interested in Trabzonspor captain and Turkey goalkeeper Gurgen Kassir and will watch him play in Thursday's World Cup playoff against Portugal. Very good player, very good goalkeeper, very athletic, commands his box well. A uh, little bit questionable on crosses, but, you know, they've got Melier, so they're used to keepers so sort of question, questionable on crosses. Arsenal are keen to tie Bakayo Saka to a long-term contract to fend off interest in Premier League rivals. If they get top four, I think he signs a new contract. If they don't, then it becomes questionable. Leicester have joined a list of clubs interested in signing Salzburg and Austria Ford Adamu. He's very talented. I don't think he's ready to leave, though. Like, sometimes you watch players play for clubs like Salzburg, and it's clear they need to go elsewhere. They're ready to go elsewhere and absolutely star. With him, I just don't see it yet. He's only had one season with Salzburg. He scored, I think he's got six goals. I think he needs another couple of years there, to be totally honest. He's very talented, though. It was a big get for Austria to get him as well, because he's Nigerian by birth, but he wanted to play for Austria. Uh, Derby fullback Festi Abaselli looks set to join Udinese. I think he's already signed that contract and been unveiled. Uh, very, very talented. Irish-born from Enniscorty by... Um, Plays right back and play on the wing. Lightning quick, explosive kind of athlete. One I'm excited about for the Irish for, uh, international team. One I think can be a, a big-time player. Celtic goalkeeper Vasilis Barkas has told the club he wants to leave Parkhead in the summer after slipping down the order to be third choice. Yeah, no loss on your bike, son. Newcastle retain an interest in Dean Henderson and will wait on United's decision whether to loan him out this summer. His contract until 2025. If he leaves United, it needs to be on a permanent deal. Simple as that. 
Uh, Magpies boss Eddie Howe is set to raid Bournemouth with a 12 million move for Lloyd Kelly. That'll be the same Lloyd Kelly he bought and then buried on the bench at Bournemouth. If I was Lloyd Kelly, I'd tell him thanks, but no thanks. You'll get a better offer. Uh, The UK and Ireland are set to be named as joint hosts of Euro 2028, with no rival bid having come forward before Wednesday's deadline. Given today is Tuesday and tomorrow is Wednesday, we'll wait and see on that one, but it does look likely. AC Milan are preparing a contract offer for Divock Origi after he was told he after he told Liverpool he would leave in the summer. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been it's been fun, Divock. Thanks for the memories, but on you go. Premier League referee Mike Dean will quit on-field officiating at the end of the season and take up a full-time role as VAR. Now, Mike Dean is obviously not a particularly good referee. Not the worst. Not particularly good. Um, But I do like the idea of him becoming a full-time VAR. And I do think maybe there should be a cutoff point of about 50 for referees in terms of on-field, and maybe they should go and do the VAR thing beyond that. Now, I would rather see the VARs be non-referees, people that are brought in and trained purely to be VAR and have no connection at all with the referees. I think we'd get uh, a far better run of things doing that. But look, it's it's better than having part-time VARs. Uh, and that is it. That is me for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.